So um, Mark chapter 1, verses 9. I really should have opened Mark before I got up here, but not to worry. Verse 9, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the waters, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And the voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the Spirit immediately drove him into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So last week, if you remember, last week we heard this rather eccentric character called John the Baptist, the guy who ate very strange food, who wore seriously itchy clothes, and who was in people's faces. Remember him? He was... He just loved to call people to repent, to turn to God. That was his passion. But actually, his greater passion was to point people towards Jesus. So now, as we get into verse 9, we see that, um, that, John, or, sorry, that, that Mark introduces Jesus to us formally for the very, very first time. But the only thing that he has to say about Jesus is that this is Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. That has got to be the shortest introduction that anyone has ever given to Jesus. This is Jesus from Nazareth in, in, in Galilee. Mark was a man of very few words, as we will continue to discover as the story unfolds. In fact, the only key that Mark has really given to Jesus. True identity comes in verse 8 through the words of John the Baptist when John says, after me comes the one who is mightier than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Now, I don't think that it's any accident that verses 8 and verses 9 are placed side by side because we see this comparison between Jesus and John the Baptist. We've got, the, we've got Jesus' baptism that he's about to do, but also the baptism that John is already doing. In verse 8, we see Jesus the one who is the giver of life, the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. But in verse 9, this same Jesus, the one who actually comes to John to receive John's baptism, a baptism of repentance. Let me make one thing very clear before we go any further. Jesus did not need to repent He is not a sinner. Jesus never sinned. He lived a perfect life. So begs the question, why, oh why, is Jesus coming to John to be baptized? What's going on here? Well, I think very simply, Jesus wants us to understand why he came, why he left heaven, why he came down to this earth, because Jesus' mission had everything to do with repentance, had everything to do with God's judgment on sin, but it wasn't Jesus' sin, it was your sin and my sin. 
And because Jesus never sinned, his repentance is perfect, just as his life is perfect. So Jesus, the beloved Son of God, comes in obedience to his Father. He comes and is being baptized by John. And in doing so, he's identifying with humanity. He identifies with you and with me. But I think this becomes even clearer as we look at where Jesus came from, at where he he lived. So that one thing that that Mark chooses to tell us in verse 9, that he is from Nazareth in Galilee. Well, Nazareth, many of you you may know, was not, not the most fantastic of places. In fact, most people who came from Nazareth were were thought of as not being very important at all. In fact, later on, we read in the Gospels how as people are talking about Jesus and talking about this place of Nazareth, that they they say, sorry, I'm getting distracted by my my family coming in. (laughs) Come in, welcome. (laughs) As they're talking about Nazareth, um, they say, can anything good possibly come out of a place like Nazareth? Is it possible that something good come from there? The answer, of course, is they say think it's not. Now, remember, I went off to university for the first time, and remember, one of the things, and I'm sure still true today, one of the things you are asked as soon as you go to university is, what's your name, where do you come from? I'm sure it hasn't changed over the years. So I would go, and people say, where? so I would say, well, I'm, I'm from Ballygolly. Blank expression. I would try to say, well, actually, I'm from County Tyrone, not much more. So I got to the point, I says, look, I'm, I'm, from, I'm, I'm from Ireland. Remember a girl coming up to me once and saying to me, Keith, do you still use horse and carts over there? She's perfectly serious. Didn't quite know how to respond to that one. But that's the sort of feeling that people had about Jesus' place of birth. It was just, it was, it was of no importance. It was a little bit backward. It, was that, it wasn't significant at all. It's interesting to note the people who are coming to John to be baptized, Mark tells us, are from Judah and from Jerusalem. They're from the central province. They're from this holy city. These are seriously important people, and they're coming to John in repentance. They're coming to John expecting to be baptized by John. There is only one Galilean that we know of who actually ever comes to John to be baptized. And we see Jesus who follows the prophetic call of John into the wilderness. And we see in Jesus the one true Israelite. Trouble is, the people don't recognize it. They don't know who he is. But I think one of the things that Mark wants us to see really, really carefully is that Jesus, in coming from this unimportant place of, called Nazareth, in coming to John to receive this baptism, he wants us to see that Jesus is not separated from his people, that Jesus is very much a man, 100% human completely and utterly a man. And as he comes, he shares in the heritage, he shares in the identity of his people. And is it not amazing to think that the one who sends the Holy Spirit, the one who is God, humbles himself 
and comes to John to receive the baptism of repentance. And in doing so, he's saying to every one of you, I stand with you. I am like you. I am one of you. I know the problems you're going through. I know the difficulties. I know all about it. Why? Because I've been there. I've experienced them. I know what it's like. I, I understand. And, we, and Mark, wants, I think, just wants us to see that Jesus Christ is a man. 100% man. That, of course, is not where the story ends. Because we see this story coming to this incredible, amazing climax when the heavens are torn apart, when the Spirit of God comes down, and when a voice is heard from heaven. Listen, these sort of events don't happen very often, not even in the Scriptures, not even in the Bible. And as you read these things, I think, at least my thoughts, turn back to some of the Old Testament stories. It turns back to the Israelites as they stood before Mount Sinai. And Moses, in Exodus chapter 19, the Lord says to Moses, he says, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments And on that third day, the heavens, it says, are torn open, and the people are terrified. They're terrified. And as they look up to the top of that mountain, the mountain is is covered in a thick cloud, and the thunder is crashing, and the lightning lights up the night sky, and, and a loud trumpet blast blows and calls the people to come to the foot of that mountain. And as they come, as they watch, as they see the smoke coming and covering that mountain, because God descends on that mountain in fire, and the ground that these men and women are standing on is literally shaking under their feet as they are shaking. And Moses speaks to God, and God answers Moses in the thunder, and Moses is invited up into that mountain, and I bet most of those people are on their faces before a holy God. There's also the prophet Isaiah, and Isaiah cries out for a similar encounter with God as in, in Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 1. He says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake in your presence. And with these Old Testament stories ringing in your ears, as we come back to Jesus as he steps into that water, do not miss the drama of that moment. This is crazy. Don't miss the drama, the excitement of the as, he, as Jesus steps into the water, as he confesses sin on behalf of the people, as he is baptized in the water, God comes down. Heaven touches earth. Guys, this is no ordinary moment. And God the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove. And we hear the voice of God speaking, fulfilling the prophecies from Isaiah chapter 40 to behold my servant whom I uphold my chosen and whom my soul delights. 
I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice in the nations. And in Jesus Christ, we see the complete fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. And as the Holy Spirit comes down in a dove, actually, very rarely in the Old Testament is the dove used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. It's very often used as a symbol of something new. And God is doing something new here, surely. It's also used as a symbol of community. And as God speaks, is he saying in this pictorial form as the dove comes down, as God's voice is heard, is he saying that this is the unique representation of a new Israel as he looks at this one true Israelite? Something is being birthed in this moment. Something that is birthed in and through the Holy Spirit. A new community has just begun through Christ. Guess what? We are part of that community. That's us here in Chester in Freedom Church, that is you. If you know Jesus, if you have asked him into your life, you have been brought in, each one of you, by the Holy Spirit as he pulls you in into this new, into this living community by the Spirit of God. Our identity is in the Holy Spirit. As the voice speaks, he talks to Jesus and we see the Father's love just being expressed so clearly here. This unqualified divine approval of God, this absolute assurance that Jesus will fulfill the task that he has been called to do. But the greatest emphasis here surely are in those little words, this is my son. This is my son. And God sees in Jesus the one who brings hope, the one who brings restoration, the one who brings redemption to this world. Because God looks in his son, he does not just see one that he, that he loves, but finally one who he can be absolutely pleased with. But don't miss, among all the drama of the heaven being torn apart, of the dove coming down and the Holy Spirit, of God speaking, don't miss that Jesus' status has not been altered, not even for a moment. It simply confirms who he always has been, the Son of God. You see, Jesus does not become the Son of God at his baptism. No, he always was, he always is, he always will be the Son of God. He is the second person in the Trinity. So as keen as Mark is to show you that Jesus Christ is 100% man, he also wants you to see that he is 100% God. This is God who is man and man who is God. This is a miracle. This is incredible. This is Jesus This is Jesus Christ. And we see the Trinity at work here, don't we? Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet one true God as they work together, as they they encourage one another, as they adore each other with the common purpose of wanting to see Jesus Christ exalted, of wanting to bring redemption to men and women 
like you and me. So I wonder, what do you hear here? What, what do you see as you, you, as you look at this story? Do you see, I hope you see, a God who loves. I hope you see the Father heart of God. A God who loves you more than anything. I'm so thankful. My, I've got two godly parents who have always been there for me. I've made some stupid mistakes over the years, if I'm honest. But listen, it has not changed my dad's love for me, not even for a moment. Now, if an earthly father, imperfect, can love me as much as that, how much more does my heavenly Father love me? How much more does your heavenly Father love you? His love is completely perfect. It is untainted. It is absolutely trustworthy. It will never, never let you down. And if you have invited Jesus into your heart, listen, you are accepted. You are loved by the Father because of his son, Jesus. He loves you unconditionally. He loves you absolutely. He loves you completely. I hope you hear that as he looks down on you this afternoon. By the way, I think Matthew works in a different time zone to us, don't you, Matthew? (laughs) Sorry, he said morning, lots lots this morning, this afternoon. (laughs) He did. Don't worry. But the Father looks down on you. He says to you, you know, you're my daughter. You're my son. I love you. I love you. I love you. And I am pleased with you. And you may start, sit here and think, you know what, you've no idea what I've done this week. I haven't been that brilliant this week. Listen, it's not about what you have done. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. His grace is enough. And yes, we need to come sometimes back in repentance. We need to come and just accept his love. But listen, he loves you unconditionally. His heart is for you. As we read a little bit further on, we see as Jesus' baptism comes to an end, there is a sense in which Jesus almost immediately seems to be taken out into the wilderness and to to face these temptations. Now, in John's mind, these two events seem to be linked so closely together, it's almost as if a consequence of Jesus' baptism seems to propel him out into the desert. Now, what is most striking about all of this is perhaps just how little Mark has to say about these events. Again, he is a man of very, very few words. He just simply wants to get across the bare bones of what it looked like for Jesus to follow John's call into the wilderness. So he just mentions a couple of things. The first is this. Jesus, who's introduced publicly, who's been baptized, he now spends 40 days in the desert Bearing in mind, Mark knows his Old Testament really, really well. Also, as I've already said, he does not use words overly. He uses them very sparingly. So when he mentions the number 40, it's probably important. So I wonder what he's thinking about. 
Well, I can't help but, again, going back to the Old Testament, because I'm thinking that's where Mark was thinking. And was he thinking of somebody like Moses at Mount Sinai again? Moses, who spent 40 years in the wilderness with these people. But Moses was the guy, God's man, on that occasion, who brought the Israelites, this entire nation of Israel, out of slavery into freedom. It was Moses who brought salvation to this entire nation. Or was Mark perhaps thinking about the prophet Elijah? Elijah spent significant parts of his life also in the wilderness at Mount Herob. But a few days before that, maybe a few weeks before that, he's up on top of Mount Carmel. You know the story where he confronts the prophets of Baal? The prophets of Baal, they're going mad. They want to prove that their gods is better than the one true God. So they're, they're running around. They're mad. They're cutting themselves. They're just praying that, that this little altar will, will some get a little flicker of flame. Not a hope. Elijah steps forward, God's man on that occasion, and he, he gets buckets of water, he throws them over all the stuff, he gets as wet as he possibly can, and then he just prays, and just that altar just ignites and is burnt to a cinder within seconds, and God says, no, I'm in charge here. And we see through Elijah, a man who, who God uses to bring real victory. Is that what Mark is thinking? And as Mark looks now at Jesus also in the wilderness for these 40 days, is he thinking that in this, in Jesus Christ, we see a better Moses? In Jesus, do we see a better, a greater Elijah? And as we look at this man, Jesus, this is no prophet. This is God who has become flesh. Is that what Mark wants us to see? can't be 100% sure. I think there's a good chance it is. The second thing we notice here is that Jesus is alone in the wilderness. See, throughout his ministry, he was alone with his father. Jesus used to take chunks of time and just get away from life and get away from people and just spend time with his father in prayer. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but if Jesus needed to do that, don't we? What do you think? I think there's a good chance we probably do, actually. And listen, we need just make, let's be practical for a moment. It means getting rid of things like these phones, actually, if we're ready. It's getting the, switching these things off. These are the biggest time wasters in the world, aren't they? It's getting rid of our technology sometimes. It's getting time alone in God's presence and getting time with Scripture and reading and getting to know what is spending time in prayers, allowing the Holy Spirit to minister to us in those times is creating space for God to speak. If Jesus needed it, so do you. So do you. Note, however, that it was not always easy in those times. It can be tricky sometimes. Distractions come very easily, very quickly. The third thing is that the Holy Spirit does not allow him to leave the wilderness. And Jesus submits to the Holy Spirit. And we again, we see how he humbly comes in obedience to the Holy Spirit. We see the Trinity at work here once again. And Jesus listens to and is compelled and is directed and is guided by the Holy Spirit. Same thing, guys. Surely if Jesus needed that, don't I? 
don't you? That we're hearing and listening as we just go through life. What's God saying in this situation? What's the Holy Spirit prompting you to do? The fourth thing is that he conquered, sorry, he, conf- he is confronted by Satan, by wild beasts, but, also by minis- but he's also ministered to by angels. It would appear that the temptations that Jesus is facing here seem to be the consequence of him spending this time in the wilderness. Now, we're not told the exact details of the temptations that go on here, but Mark just wants to make one thing very clear. These temptations are real. What's going on here is extremely real. Jesus does not come into this world and just sort of just float through life on a little cloud, quite happily, untouched by all the problems of life, just sort of sailing over the surface of the earth and gliding through life with no worries. No, he walks the dirty streets. He gets his feet dirty. He has to face the challenges that you face. He faced the demonic. He faced sickness. He faced the problems of life. And listen, he faced them and he beat them. And because he was able to do that, he is the one, because he is fully God and fully man, who could go to the cross, who could take your sin and mine There's one thing that Mark tells us that none of the other writers tell us, and that is that Jesus had to face wild beasts, wild animals. And again, very simply, I think he just wants us to understand the reality of what it was like for Jesus in the wilderness to see the horrors, to see the loneliness, to see see the dangers that, that he faced at this particular time. This is no picnic. This is no sort of pleasure ground. This is the realm of Satan. It's tough. It is seriously tough here. But Jesus is not alone because the Holy Spirit is with him. Also, God sends angels to minister to him. These temptations, these dangers, these ministering angels, it would appear that they are simultaneous but also continuous throughout Jesus' lifetime. You see, Mark never tells us that these temptations actually ever ended. There's no conclusion ever to them. In fact, it would appear to be that during this time in the wilderness that Jesus does not reach any decisive victory over these temptations. But the victory does come through his sacrificial death on the cross. And actually, Mark, he almost just wants to give us a little clue as we go through it. And the picture is building. And you'll find that over the next couple of weeks, it just builds and builds and builds. Because Mark is heading in one place only, and that is to the cross of Jesus Christ, where our sin has been dealt with, where our redemption was bought. That's where he's going. But he now leaves us looking at the reality of a battle that is going on between the forces of hell and the army of God. Guys, truth of the matter is, we are in a battle. If you love Jesus, you're in a battle. There's spiritual battle going on all around us. Satan would love to destroy some of you guys. Satan would love to destroy this church plant. Satan would love to come and cause as much trouble and as much difficulty as he possibly can. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says... Your adversary, the devil, is going around like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. As some of you know, we've got two cats. One of those cats 
given the chance, will hunt down any small animal, rabbit, bird, mice, and when he, when he catches him, he will play with it for a while, and he will torture it for a little bit longer before he will eventually kill it. In our last house, we used to come in regularly and find everything from decapitated rabbits to dead mice to birds lying on our kitchen floor. Now, those cats, they look beautiful, don't they? All these people come into our house, oh, what, what, what gorgeous cats, and, and they're just so tame. Don't be deceived. These are trained killers, honestly. Guys, that's Satan. Big cat or small cat. That's why Peter, I think, uses this illustration. He sneaks up subtly and quietly. You don't even see him coming sometimes. And he will hit you at your weakest spot. He knows exactly where you're vulnerable. He knows where you're weak. And he will try and take you down. He will try and inflict as much pain as he possibly can. Don't be deceived. Sometimes the hardest battles that we face are the ones that go on in here, the ones of the mind. And we can stand up and we can put on a good face sometimes. We can say all the right things. We can do all the right things. We can look quite impressive to other people. But sometimes there can be a battle raging within that seeks almost to destroy us. Guys, it is so important that we, that we are honest with ourselves, first of all, but also honest with other people that we have put good accountability in place, that we stand together, that we seek God. And if you are struggling with temptation, and the good chance that some of you will be, and if you're not now, you will be. It's very certain. I'm very certain of that. In those times, what you do, you cry out to the one who has been there. You cry to the one who has seen it all and who has beaten it all. You go to Jesus Christ, the one who is victorious, the one whose victory was won at the cross over sin, over death, over hell, over it all. You go to him and listen, he will not reject you and he will not crush you because he loves you. He really loves you and cares for you. Let's just stand together. Phil, we just sing that last one, just one song again. What's the last? Yeah, let's do this one. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Let's just stand. Let's going to pray. We're just going to finish with one final song. Lord, we want to thank you for the wonder of who you are. Lord, we know that sometimes life is difficult, that there are challenges. Lord, we know that temptations do come. But Lord, we want to just say, Lord, that we want to come to you knowing that you are able and you're willing that you can provide a way out for us. Thank you for the cross once again. Thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you, Jesus.